From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 15, Last Words. So, Joe, this is the last episode of the season. How does it all end? How did it all end? Okay, so it's the day after my last robbery, and I'm in L.A. I'm on the west side, uh, staying at a hotel right off the 405 off Sunset. And I know that I want to meet my girlfriend at UCLA that day to give her some money because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Mexico. That was going to be it, right? Like was you're it. Gonna that was be... it. I was going to be in the wind. So I get in my car. I'm driving down Sunset. I'm coming to UCLA the back way. And I see a motorcycle cop right behind the bushes hiding in. Like if I drive in, he's seeing who's coming in and out. And I think that's that's odd because they know that I'm, they're going to be following my girlfriend. Um, I'm going to still be, I'm cannier than them, right? Like I, I'm not going to drive in. Fuck them. They don't know how good I am. Watch this. So I drive into Westwood. And I would drive into downtown Westwood, park my car inside a, a park garage so no helicopter can find my car just by flying over. Were you thinking at this point about the day before when the armored car had kind of Not pulled away from you? Not at all. You didn't, you weren't like, oh, maybe they got my license no, plate? No. no, I wasn't thinking any of that. All I'm thinking is, okay, so what? They're looking for a car. You know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of students? They're not going to find needle on a haystack, right? Right. So I get, I decided to walk into the campus. I walk into the campus. Now behind the library there, they have vending machines and table, big metal tables. And, and it was tightly packed with students when I was there. So, you know, you figure eight tables, five people per table or whatever. There's a lot of people there. So I decided to get some coffee, whatever, cappuccino and off the machine. And, and I'm reading my Wall Street Journal and I'm looking around. And all of a sudden, I hear... Joe? Joe Lawyer? I turn to my left and I see this guy, you know, just milk toast white guy, glasses, shorts, UCLA sweatshirt, but I don't recognize him, so I just turn back to my newspaper. Joe, Joe, like, you know, all of a sudden he realizes I'm that and he's trying to catch me and I don't look again. I don't look, but I realize, oh shit, I'm fucked. This, I might be fucked. And at that moment, I feel somebody like behind me, not him. He's still over there, and I feel this person behind me, so I jump up, I throw my chair back, and this person grabs my wrist with one hand and the back of my, my elbow with another, like to just try to, to try to control me. And he's now on me, he jumps on my left, and I'm hitting him, and he's like, FBI, you're under arrest. And I'm listening for other FBI agents to come, to be like, Get your hands up. Like, you know, and I'm not hearing any running. I'm not hearing any screaming. And just, you know, instinctively, I realize this is me and them. I'm just pummeling him, pummeling him, pummeling him. And I feel his grip start to loosen. So I'm thinking, oh, man, this is, <laughs> I think I can get away. I'll go in a building. I'll go to the third floor. I'll jump on a roof on the way out and go to you know, through the bathroom. Go to, you know, like, I'm going to run around. He yells out, help us, we're the FBI. And I'm like, I don't know these people, stay out of it. And I realize I sound stupid as soon as I say it. Like, of course they're the FBI. These aren't just like a woman and a man jumping on a guy saying they're FBI. 
this has to be serious and it, 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 it may, may be confusing to them but they know in this scrimmage I'm the bad guy you mean the other students or who are the other students who are all around me right, right? there's a, and there's there's a group of them there's you know it's that big area back there I'm just beating the shit out of him at this point and all of a sudden I just I'm I can't move They all, the kids just jump on me. These boys, just these guys, and I'm swarmed. And my hands are on my side because I can no longer pummel, I can't swing, I can't do nothing. They're all trying to grab me. And then I feel, clack, click. And they tie me up, handcuff me. And I'm just the whole time, fuck you, motherfucker, goddamn sons of bitches. Just, I was so angry. Because I knew, I'm caught, I'm never getting bail again, I'm going to have to go do time. And that was it. And that was it, man. They got me. They got me. Part one. Prodigal Sons. So I want you to imagine a sunny but cold day last fall in the city of Bend, Oregon. The sun is bright, the leaves are changing, the wind is blowing. Joe and I have driven out to a sprawling, ranch-style home in the rolling hills just outside of town. Well, maybe just out of town 10 years ago. Now it's one of these comfortable subdivisions where visiting grandchildren outnumber all other demographic groups. Wow. I look forward to this day for a while. A lot has happened since Special Agent Keith Cordes, FBI, picked up Joe at the campus police station at UCLA. A lot's happened even since Joe got out of prison and went home to his dad and brother, like we heard at the end of the last episode. Joe wrote a book, a memoir of his life of crime, his lives before and after. It's called The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell. We've mentioned it a few times on the show. He also met a woman and moved to the Bay Area. They got married, and their daughter is 13 now. Joe's done writing for Hollywood, script consulting, magazine articles, op-eds, lots of creative jobs like that. He's done well. He's also really focused on raising his daughter. He homeschools her, envelops her in love and safety and connection. Meanwhile, Cordes wrapped up almost 25 years at the FBI. He worked some famous cases. The Unabomber is probably the most famous. A lot of bank robbery. Then he and his wife retired here to Bend. When we first started making this podcast, we knew we wanted to interview the man who caught Joe Loya. We had in our heads this epic cat-and-mouse game taking place all over Southern California. Car chases, a battle of wills. But the reality was a little different. Turns out, 
Joe was caught in a similar way to how most bank robbers get caught. They just keep going and going and going till their luck runs out. And it always runs out. Keith Cordes. Joe's lawyer. Oh my God. How are you, man? Thank you. Thank you for this. Well, so good to see you. Cordes invited us in. Well, just go in and find some places for now. Took us to his love me room that you might remember from episode three. Well, that's my love me room. (laughs) It's his room filled with photos, trinkets, old sports jerseys, the memorabilia of his life displayed from wall to wall. When we started the conversation and we were first arrested, I sounded like a school teacher instead of an FBI agent. At that time, I didn't know you were the Beirut bandit. Cordes was called in after Joe had been arrested by the L.A. Sheriff Department, and almost immediately he saw that Joe was different than other bank robbers. And I started talking to you about, you can make something yourself. He points to a frame filled with mugshots. Because you look at these guys here, you're going to recognize this guy right there. (laughs) That's me. Wow, look at this. The typical bank robber? According to Special Agent Keith Cordes, believe it or not, it's a crime of opportunity, mostly people addicted to drugs. 99% of the time, it's more like sticking up a 7-Eleven than it is Ocean's Eleven. Do you remember when you guys got me at UCLA? Oh, yeah. I I banging my head against the wall. I was literally banging my head against the wall. You were angry at me. Your anger and your rage 30 years ago had consumed you. Yeah. Back in episode three... Cordes talked about second chances. You'll remember that he was given a second chance to turn his life around. And so later, as an FBI agent, he would try to give second chances to others. So after meeting Joe, who wasn't on drugs, who had friends who cared about him, who had a family, a dad who said he loved him, Cordes stuck his neck out, got Joe a lower bail. And then Joe went robbing again. Even in the car down from UCLA, I was giving the same spiel to you. You can do it. Yeah. And you did. I did. You paid a pretty big price, my man. But like Joe said, he was one of those you weren't arrested, you were rescued kind of guys. And so the second chance, plus two years in solitary, plus nine years total time served, added up. I mean, you've heard the calculations yourself. You talked to me like a teacher when I was in back in the car. I mean, the only time you didn't talk to me like a teacher is when you said, okay, so now we got you. You're going to have to go away, Joe, between, you know, 8 and 12 years, but it's only 8 and 12. You know, you're still a young man. You'll get out. You'll be a young man. And I was thinking, I was like, well, 8 to 12 years, let me process that. Because well, um, I, I think I looked out the window and was like, oh, my God, how am I going to even deal with this? Your defense wanted, uh, I think, 7. The prosecutors wanted 12. Yeah. We talked with the assistant United States attorney. We came up with 9. You fought to give me a little amount of time because you believed I had a future. And I came out, I took advantage of that future. You said things were going well then. And I was just coming out. And I was still struggling I because I was still struggling with myself. But I found my footing, and I've done really, well, really you also, well. also, I struggled a lot, and a lot of people helped me. I still can't spell dysfunctional, but our families. We're dysfunctional. Back then, we just called it screwed up. Yeah. As I've grown older and older, I find that these stories, they're all out there. Family. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you and your dad are. We're doing really good. 
it was not very easy for you to do that. I, I was mad at my dad, but I didn't have the anger and um, rage that you had then, that you've gotten rid of. Yeah. And I made up with my dad. Yeah, that's After cool. he was gone 14 years. And so, these two men, on either side of the law at different points in their lives, have found second chances. Not just for others, but for themselves. And they've figured out how to sit for a few hours on a beautiful day, in a beautiful town, and look back at one another, and feel good about the decisions they made, about how things turned out in the end. And so, here we sit 30 years after you're in a backseat of a car in handcuffs, and your life, which is now good. I'm blessed by my life. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. Part two, Prodigal Dad. How do you forgive someone who's done you so wrong? What is the proper amount of remorse for them to show or penance? And who decides? I quit going to church for many, 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 many years. This is Joe Sr., Joe's dad. I saw myself as a hypocrite that a lot of people say, oh yeah, (laughs) you know what kind of dad he is? Hmm. You know what kind of person he is? Yeah, and justifiably so. People have a right to say that. And I gotta suck it up. Because it is true that at that time in my life, that's exactly what was true. I have deep regrets, but I've tried to move forward. I wish I could erase it, but it's there. The fact that my children love me today is amazing. It's an amazing thing. As we heard in the last episode, forgiving each other, turning the page, as Joe said, was, I don't want to say it was the easy part, But it seems to me that after doing everything that they did to each other, to others, there was another forgiving that was harder. Which is, after doing so much wrong, how do you forgive yourself? I would sometimes feel like, okay, I forgive myself. Into my 40s. 45, 46, 50. I thought I'd forgiven myself. But sooner or later, something would pop up 
and I hadn't. And having a hard time working through the guilt that I felt was not easy. The hypocrisy that I had lived, uh, more than anything, as a Christian, you're supposed to display a life that doesn't have dissonance. A life you claim you believe in God, you sure doesn't look like it to me. And I was all of that. Talk about dishonoring a God that I claimed I believed in, who said, you know, that love is the most important thing. I didn't show any of those. So how did you do it? Over a long period of time, it, with the help of my sons, as they told me that they had forgiven me, as they, and then as I, you know, I'd read those passages in Proverbs, other books in the Bible, um, and I'd find out, you know, there's forgiveness for everybody. Who are you? I need to forgive myself. I need to move past this. I, if I, am I going to wallow in this for the rest of my life? Those conversations were happening in my, you know, head. And I felt that I needed to really make an effort at just accepting the love that my children had for me. Joe, even to, as recently as maybe a month ago, he calls me up and he and he'll text me and say, yeah, I know you, you still think this and this and that, but Dad, it's not like that. We love you. There's an idea about forgiveness, that one day you're forgiven, and then that's that. But forgiveness doesn't come all at once. Forgiveness is a process. It's a process that continues to this day. Years back, I think it was in 2015, I said, we had to get together and do something, Joe, where we could share our story. Before that, I didn't want anybody to know. Hmm. But I came to this point of, okay, how can we turn this into something that's positive? Maybe we can help someone else. The Joes, I'm just going to call them the Joes now, they did a presentation in front of a group of men in prison a few years back, men who were in prison for domestic violence convictions. First, Joe Sr. came out, explained his story, everything he did, all the violent acts he committed, and everything that came to him because of it. Then Joe Jr. came out and explained his side of the story. Then they hugged, and everyone in the room gasped. And I picked up that book that I so despised. He's talking about Joe's memoir, The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell, which includes everything we've talked about in this podcast, and a lot more. And I told the the guys, I hated this book. I hated this book. You want to know why? Because it's talked about me and my failures. It talked about what I really was. And um, if we can help anyone, that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. If we can help anyone that's going through any similar situation, hey, make it right. I called my dad once and I said, Dad, we haven't talked in two years. And I know if I wait for you, I'll never get the call. 
was 69 years old. He, ne- he gave up drinking and never drank till he passed away at 74. And those were the best five years of my mm. entire life with my dad. We bonded in ways I thought we would never bond. We laughed, we joked, he shared his personal struggles. And he left us a legacy that no matter where, what struggle you have, you can overcome it. It's possible if you want it bad enough, if you're willing to do the work. So that's where I am. And my dad had a part in it, and my children had a part in it, my sister had a part in it. And I think it's very important to realize that those that love you can be a support group to encourage you on that path. So a lot of people take need to be credited with my coming to the place where I am today. As unsatisfying as forgiveness can look, especially from our seats here, audiences listening to true crime podcasts, two things strike me. One, when we talk about metaphorical wolves and sheep, as we've done on this show, forgiveness is one thing that can allow those skins to come off and let us see each other as human beings again. Not predator, not prey, not monsters, but human beings. Family, even. And the second thing is, listening to Joe Sr. here, listening to Joe in the last few episodes, in the victims episode especially, it occurs to me that forgiving yourself is sometimes the only thing that can keep your past from becoming its own kind of monster and eating you alive. Maybe we we can say words that'll be a healing balm for someone. Someone will be encouraged to not quit trying. A father like me who regrets, has great regrets over things he did. And if he's got children that forgive him or don't forgive him, he needs to move past it. He needs to confront what he did and go to those that that he, he hurt and ask for their forgiveness. We'll be right back. Part three, changes. We've talked to a lot of people for this podcast. A lot of people. And I've asked each one, what do you think? Joe's lived a long life, full of lots of twists and turns at this point. Lots of bad and lots of good. What do you think? Has Joe changed? I'm very impressed with the post-prison Joe Loya. Um, He's only going to get better and better and better. This is Danny Shaw. Joe's high school friend. They reconnected while Joe was in prison, and they remain friends today. Danny's one of the people who's confident Joe's changed. One of the things I was impressed with was when he told me that his parole officer had a copy of his book, and I could see his parole officer using that book as an example of what can happen to uh, any parolee that gets out of prison. 
I think the book is probably a pretty good Bible, or certainly um, it's almost like a textbook for success post-prison. So he's not going back. I actually believe that um, he's on a path right now, um, and he's here for that purpose. To me, as long as you have hope and you have support, you can change. This is Lisa Perez, also a high school friend. They had a bit of a rough time of it after Joe got out of prison, you remember from the last episode. But they're friends again. They remain friends today. I think with him and I, no matter how far the distance is, if I'm in dire straits, I know I can call him. And I think he would call me if a situation, you know, happens to him. And I think through eternity, I think we're going to be there for each other. Parole's over, you know, so I think he's just a, a standing citizen. And I, I think only good things are going to happen for him. Now it's a piece of cake. I mean, you know, he has his daughter. He, you know, he has a family support. And so I, I think he's, you know, smooth sailing from here. I guess I would frame it, is Joe the same person? Has Joe made changes in his life that he's invested more in, in certain things than other things now? Here's Joe's brother, Paul. Absolutely. I think that um, Joe is more invested in love. Joe is more invested in, um, in raising his daughter. Joe is more invested in, in how he um, contributes to society and how he is affecting society in that way. Did Joe do a lot of bad things? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I would say that everybody has the capacity to do bad. Everybody has the capacity to do good. There are people who look at Joe today and more or less see Joe as he's always been. Every time I see Joey, he is as I've always known him. Oh, let me distract you. Let me, let me point up the good things about me. Um, it's always been a certain version of that. This is Joe's stepmom, Brenda. When I met him that time in Pasadena, it was, well, yeah, you know, I robbed a bank, but, and then, you know, let me walk you over here and show you something else about my life. So there's been different stages of it, but the theme and the methodology has stayed the same for as long as I've known him. What I would see him doing on the Internet over the years he joined all these group of young people who get together and tell stories to each other. This is Richard Rodriguez, the writer and essayist. But the story he was telling was usually the same story. It was a story about the night that he tried, he cut his father with a knife. Right. You can only tell that story so many times before it becomes clear to me, a listener, that he's trapped by the story. That is, this is the rhyme of the ancient mariner, that, that, he, that the story now has caught him and he can't get out of it. Do you know what I'm saying? That there are, there, are, there are stories that will not let you go. So, yes, you tell the story and you think, oh, I'm free of the story. But you're not free of the story because the story is not free of you. I think that we all, always all have our, our demons, you know. I think the wound of losing his mother will always always, always haunt him. Here's Aida Salazar, who met Joe post-prison. And I don't think that it would um, 
it would serve him or the world if he liberated himself from from that story and because because we learn so much from that that story we learn about redemption and the struggle for love and self-love when we talked about joe everyone had something different to say but when it comes to whether or not he's changed there's one thing that practically everyone pointed to fatherhood his family for maybe about 3 years i didn't i didn't see him until he had his daughter um, and when that baby was born i saw a side of joe that i never i, I couldn't even begin to imagine seeing him with that baby on his chest 24/7 like this tiny little human and how much care and and love that he was pouring into this this being witnessing the relationship between Joe and his daughter has been uh, a, a kind of a blossoming a, a blossoming for Joe that I didn't think was possible um, until I witnessed it I hope for Joe because he's become such an interesting father, um, that achievement of the criminal uh, to, to the family man is really quite amazing, it seems to me, and a great, great achievement of his. Uh, I wouldn't want to embarrass him by saying it, in it to his face, but I would say it to you, the stranger's face, uh, that's not bad for the criminal. At the end of the day, who knows? if someone's changed or hasn't changed. Who knows what's really in anyone's true heart? It's a stupid question to even ask. It's unknowable. But let's give the last word here to Brenda, because Brenda knows Joe's struggle better than anyone, him and Paul, everything they went through. And she knows what it means to survive and not perish, to not let anything, including your past, destroy you. I think we're blessed. I think Joey and Paul and I are, are the lucky ones. Abuse and this kind of violence happens a lot. It's rare that three out of three of us moved on and made a life. Impacted by it, but it didn't win. It didn't pull us down for good. That's rare. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the boys. I wish more people understood that. I am so proud of both of them. I want people to know that. I want them to know that. I know what it took. I know what they went through. I know how hard I know how hard it was as an adult to climb out of it. What they had to do is they deserve medals. I know that. If no one else knows, I do. The violence has not continued. It stopped. That is remarkable. That's remarkable. We'll be right back. Part 4. The Last Word.
Joe, you know, we've talked a lot about what your life was like when you were robbing banks. You've walked us through bank robberies at the top of most of the episodes. What's the day in your life like now? Walk me through like a day in your life now. Okay, so I wake up very early, around 3.30 or 4. The house is quiet because I don't want to hear any voices. I got my imagination. I know what I want to do. I don't want to be interrupted. I need to be focused. And so I get up. I go make my coffee, my taster's choice, just like I had in a prison. I like to be reminded that I'm still a dark guy. I go turn my computer on. And I start looking at stories. Sometimes a crime story, sometimes a not. I just need to get peaked, my mind peaked. And I want to write stories. I want to create crime. I want to be inspired by a transgression. Then um, I've had my time alone. The family starts waking up. And then I start really getting serious about planning the day because now I've just kind of let my imagination go dark a little bit. And so I start thinking about what I'm going to make my daughter for breakfast. (laughs) 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 Maybe it's soy chorizo. (laughs) Maybe. Um, You know, I've been doing a lot playing with kale and chard and sautéing it with garlic and onions. She really seems to like that. So... I get all this dark charged energy of mine. <laughs> Turn the flame on. I make some hash browns and, so, and saute some chard and kale for my baby girl. Maybe throwing some black beans on the on you know on the on, on the oven. Okay, so that was fun. A fun way of walking us <laughs> through your day. Um, you know, your life now obviously isn't it isn't as outwardly exciting as it was during your bank robber days, or or is it? No. No. <laughs> Come on, man. Not even close. I mean, you know, I don't want it. I mean, because excitement, what you say is excitement, is incredible stress. Right. You know, you can't you can't divorce it from that. And and frankly, who wants that fucking stress? I already had it. It was bad on my body. It was bad on my mind. I like a life in which, you know, I got touchstones. I got people. I got I got routines. Um, yeah. Do you um do you miss the bank robber days? I mean, I think it's natural for anybody like in middle age and and beyond to kind of look back and reminisce. But like, how do you how do you feel about those days? Do you miss them? Hell no, 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 no. Okay, so several things you need to understand. If you put a gun in my hand right now and said, "Listen, man, we're going to do harm to your family if you don't go rob a bank," I'm not sure I'd successfully pull off a bank robbery. To be honest with you. I don't have the requisite rage. That guy who robbed the bank is not me. It's almost like I, I he'd tell these stories or whatever, but I actually look at back on that young guy. I'm like, wow, that dude was risked it all and didn't care. And like, that's not me. So I don't miss that. Um, what I miss, there's moments where something happens and you're like, oh, I can go this way. Oh, I can do that. And a whole new thing of possibilities happens. And when you're a criminal and you have that impulsivity and you respond to it, oh, man, the body delights in that. 
I missed that element of danger, which is why when I was in prison, I thought, well, I'm not going to rob banks anymore. How am I going to get that hit? I can jump out of planes. I can um, bungee jump. You know, those are the kind of things that I thought could give my body the same kind of like, oh, shit, I'm jumping off, free fall. Like that kind of thing is what I'm talking about. Um, but with, what I really miss, what I've, I've missed sometimes a lot more than others, it's hard to describe to people. I miss solitary confinement. Hmm. There is a part of me that's like, oh, man, I could just... I could just be alone and with my thoughts mm. uninterrupted, no domestic responsibilities, no friendships to keep up, nothing like just not just like me letting my brain go and I wrote so much. But yeah, I miss solitary sometimes. <laughs> We talked um, about how, you know, at different points in the podcast, we talked about how draining it's been for you, remembering these stories, telling these stories. Um, But, you know, a lot of people have talked to me, and we've seen this in the reviews in Apple Podcasts too, that you seem sort of delighted when you're telling a lot of the old bank robbery stories, that maybe you're not remorseful. (laughs) What do you say about that? Yeah, so you see there's two things. One, I'm a storyteller. So I look at everything as a story. Everything's story. Mm-hmm. And um, when I tell these stories, they're exciting stories. They're cinematic stories. There's action. And I remember, oh, my God, this was this and crazy. Then And and I believe this. I'll, I'll laugh at myself in some of them, you know, just how ridiculous I am. There is... There is um, I mean, life is way more complicated. There's plenty of paradox. You're allowed to have feel one thing and also feel another thing to it. It doesn't erase it. And so as a as a complicated person, and I, I would like to believe that if anything I've earned is that the 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 acceptance that my life has been a very complicated life, and for being a complicated person, I feel like I'm allowed to have various responses or various reactions to certain th- stories on various levels. So just because I tell something in the comic way and I see the comedy in it, it doesn't mean at the same time that I am now, I feel no seriousness about it at all. Um, At all. I tell a story of me robbing a vault and all the inherent comedy in it, the paradoxes, the ironies, all of it. And then the woman who was actually robbed talks about it, breaks my heart to hear it. Both Both those responses are legit. It doesn't take away from the other. And when I, when I hear heard her, you know, all the shame and regret of it comes up. So, no, it's just I think it's kind of simple-minded to say, oh, you know, you laughed about it, so you must not feel this other thing about it. But that's the way I believe, so. Mm-hmm. At this point, you've written your memoir. You've done a one-man show. Uh, you've told these stories a few times. Uh, now you've done this podcast. When do you stop living in this story? Is there a point where you move on from it? Uh, no, homeboy. Nobody's like... Nobody's like, hey, narcissist, man. When you quit being narcissist, 
You're a narcissist. He's narcissist. <laughs> he says, hey, dude, with the, you know, with the waxy wings, man. When are you going to start being a dude who flies close to the sun? No, that's your story. It'll adapt. But no, um, I'm always going to be this, if nothing else, because everyone else knows these stories too. And everyone else is going to measure me against those stories. That's, I'm stuck to that. Richard Rodriguez, in the, in the last segment, he said he thought you might be trapped in your story. Do you ever feel trapped in your story? No. No. I mean, you know, yes, I once did feel trapped in my story. Because in the beginning, my story was a shit story. I was this guy who thought I was bigger than I ever, and nobody could see how big I was. Nobody could see what I thought was, I had some expansive spirit in me, but I was just this little kid getting the shit beat out of him. I was getting bullied. I didn't feel I had anywhere to go other than this narrative, being scared shit, fucking victim. I said, fuck this, I'm going to change this. And I changed it, stabbed my dad, set me off on the course of this relationship with my dad for the rest of my life. But along the way, I kept innovating, become a petty criminal, say, fuck that, I don't want to be a petty criminal, up my game, become a bank robber, innovate in that way. And that leads me to a whole other crew of men in which I gain, gain all sorts of experience in the criminal world, gain all sorts of reputation, I end up becoming a man in that, realizing myself, testing myself, challenging myself and being challenged. And then I innovated off that and said, fuck that. I don't want to be in prison for the rest of my life. I want to become a writer. And I did that. And I write my memoir, do my one-man show. And I'm like, I'm not happy with that. I want to go to Hollywood. I got to figure out how to get in the, in the movies. and do like I keep innovating and also want to be a dad. That's important to me. I need to re- innovate because I got out. I actually got married and innovate with that because let's have a kid now and like just keep changing my story, adding elements to it, elevating my story. A lot of people at this point have listened to a lot of this story, 15 episodes, you know, a lot of your life. Uh, what do you think they should take away from it? What do you hope they get out of it? I think there's a chief thing because you know what it is? It's true. Like there's a lot of things that people can get, but there's really one chief thing I want people to get from it. And that's that. Not only are you not stuck, you can make moves, you can change your imagination. I've been in the darkest place where I didn't have any experience of being a person who could change. At all. All I had was efforts to change and failures at those efforts. And I'm here now. And along the way made a lot of changes. That's an important thing, coupled with all along the way, I was working on healing and getting to a point of changing this really powerfully negative relationship I have with my father. The rage that was ignited because of that, trying to come to grips with that, trying to dance with my dad, talk with my dad, work things through, struggle, grapple, go back a couple steps, but go forward to a place now where he's 75, I'm 58, And we love each other. We're going to hug it out tomorrow again. We have breakfast. My dad and my brother hang out once a week. They spend a big chunk of time together. We're a tight family. We're a loving family. 
you're not stuck. Is the story. You're not stuck. You're not stuck being who you think you are. And you're not stuck with the shitty relationships you think you're stuck with. If I, yeah, like, it's like Shaq. Shaq, when Kobe died recently, he said, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing, man? He went and he called all these people he's beefing with and said, we got to put the beef aside. Boop, just change them all like that. That fast. No beef. That's it. People can change. Situations can change. You're not stuck. Work it out. Figure it out. Innovate. This is episode 15 of The Bank Robber Diaries. Last words. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leone. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing is by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Next up for The Score... In a few months, maybe several months, be on the lookout for season two of The Score. In the meantime, a few bonus episodes. You're going to like them. Stay tuned. So, Joe, we're um, at the end. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything you want to emphasize for people? No, man. Nothing. You don't have anything else to say? Zip. Nah. <laughs>